Well, hey, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Uh, so glad to see you all. I know we're supposed to be in the park and baptism Sunday. And just so you know, we're still going to do baptisms for those who want to be. Uh, we did one in between service for a, a gentleman who gave his life to Christ this past week and uh, was heading back to Florida. So we went down to the beach and a few of us and his family went down and baptized him. And I know we've got a baptism that's going to happen after service as well. But for those who want baptism at the lake, we're still going to do it next week too. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking okay? I know Megan said that as well. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion, and I am so glad you're here. If you're looking for a place to go home, we'll hope, we'd hope you consider being a part of what God is doing here at Zion. Um, I, I want to share, I actually wrote this message with baptism in mind, and I'm still going to talk about baptism and how this applies for a couple reasons. One, uh, how many of you were baptized either as an infant or got baptized later on in life? Raise your hand. How many of you sometimes forget what the purpose of baptism is? It's okay if you raise your hand. <laughs> uh, I, I want to share with you what the heart of baptism is. But also it's an invitation to something. And so we're still going to talk about it. And, and I'm going to do it as if we're still going to the lake. Because, well, for those who want to join, we're going to right afterwards. Um, at the heart of baptism, it is not just an event or a symbolic moment. Baptism is a celebration of the Holy Spirit's movement in the life of a believer. It's a declaration through the sacrament of baptism saying, I'm all in, that I belong to Jesus. And now I want you to hear this because what makes the waters of baptism holy is not the water itself, it's faith in Jesus. Amen? And that's ultimately the priority. It's faith in Jesus where God takes the ordinary element of water, brings the Holy Spirit through faith, and that's where baptism moves. And so we believe that God does something in it. Now we're in the last few weeks of our summer series called You've Already Got It, where we've been exploring God's promises and blessings. Um, so this morning, we're going to dive right in. Did you catch it? Because baptism, we're going to dive. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> uh, if you're ready, <laughs> that's, was that Santa Claus laughing? What's that? <laughs> um, if you're ready for God to move this morning to hear God's word about God's heart, God's desire for your life, for the church, and, and for our community, if so, if that's you, would you say Amen. And so for those of you who want to, we started this practice of standing and joining in a prayer of agreement, but it's also an invitation and an expectation for the Holy Spirit to move. And so if you would like to, I'd like to invite you to stand with me and join me in this prayer. And because we don't have it on the screen, because we were supposed to be outside, so it'll just be a simple repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the Bible. Holy Spirit, speak to me. I want to listen. I want to know more of you, Jesus, to learn your voice, your desires, your will for my life, for your people and for the world. I want to hear what you have for me today. Soften my heart, open my eyes, help me to love you, love others, to love your church, and to love myself like Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. Our Bible verses for this morning are Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, 23 through 24, and then 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Nope, stay standing for right now. I'll read it. Here we go. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. 
You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. So search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So this past week, I was talking with a friend of mine, and he asked me a really good question. He said, Jason, I know how much you pour into other people. Who pours into you? Who cares for your soul as the person whose responsibility is to care for the soul of others? And that's a really good question because it's like asking a dentist, who do you go to to clean your teeth? Or when you have a cavity or a doctor, who do you go to for your checkup? Or a surgeon, when you need surgery, who do you go to? And, and I want you to hear this because I understand that I cannot ask something of you that I don't ask of myself. Does that make sense? And I, I want you to hear that I have several resources that pour into me. I have friends. I have friends that I trust in that, that know me, that know kind of those dark recesses of me that I don't like to share. I have pastors and mentors that I call to this day, friends that I call when I need advice or when I'm processing through something. I love reading. If you've ever been in my office, I have tons of books and they're not there to make me look smart. I actually really enjoy them and I, I use them as resources and I regularly give books away um, because they're just like having an immediate mentor right at your disposal. And then another practice that I do is I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I listen to podcasts of pastors and theologians, and as part of my weekly soul care, and I mean, this happens every week, I listen to a few different churches, pastors that I really respect, and I, I go to as a way to feed my soul. Now, many years ago, one of my pastors and mentors said this statement to me, and it's not a new one. I'm sure many of you have heard it before. He said, Jason, leaders are learners. How many of you ever heard something like that before? Leaders are learners, maybe something similar, right? The idea is, is that if you want to be a good leader, you need to be constantly learning. And so at first, I started listening to podcasts and reading books because I wanted to be the best leader I could be. And so I, I listened and I read and I poured. At one point uh, in my early 20s, I had estimated I had read over 150 books one, in one year. And it was all because this pastor had challenged me that leaders are learners, and so I would always be reading. But over the years, God began to shift something in me. I began to see just how profound the invitation that Jesus gave to his first disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the rest of his disciples, and quite frankly, anyone who calls himself a Christian, he gave this invitation. And, and I want you to hear this because this isn't what he said. When he first came to Peter, he didn't say, Peter, drop your nets and become a great leader for me. He didn't say, Peter, drop your nets so you can lead a revolution that would change the world. He didn't say, Peter, be a leader among leaders. What Jesus said was, drop your nets and follow me. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, this is interesting. If you were to go to BibleGateway.com and search in the New Testament the word leader, 
I would estimate about 98% of the time, anytime you see the word, the word leader in the New Testament, it's usually associated with an enemy of Jesus. Think about that for a second. The synagogue leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, most of them were enemies of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about leaders. There is a gift of leadership, and there's even a high calling in leadership. God ultimately calls about leaders. But the people who usually opposed Jesus were the ones who thought they were in charge. Does that make sense? And the invitation that Jesus gives us is not to be great leaders, it's to be a follower. And I wonder if what actually makes a great leader is actually someone's ability to be a great follower. And as I was processing through this, I was listening uh, and, and listening to one of the sermons of one of the pastors that I do, one of the churches. And the reason why I listen to so many sermons isn't so that I can preach better, though I certainly have gotten better at preaching, listening to some of these people. I go to these wonderful pastors and teachers to let them lead me, guide me, and challenge me. I trust them with my soul just like many of you have trusted me and the leaders of this church with your souls. And I, I take this seriously because I cannot lead you someplace that I have not been led first. Does that make sense? And so I listen to God's word and I, I trust them because I need them to lead me to waters, to living streams, because the truth is, is that if I'm honest with myself, usually when I want to lead myself, I don't actually lead myself to the right places. I tend to go to the wrong stuff. So you're not alone in that. That's something that if on every leader is honest with themselves. When they lead in their own strength, they tend to make bad decisions. This past week, I was listening to a sermon on vulnerability from a church called Sandals. And I, I tried to figure out who the woman was that was preaching. And yet they didn't tell her name. She never said her name. It was nowhere on the podcast. But she had this amazing message on the power of vulnerability. And she began to share about Jesus and how vulnerable Jesus was and the fear that we have with vulnerability and the reason why so many of us wear masks and why it's so hard to let go of masks. And as I was listening to her share God's word and the power of vulnerability, it got me asking, why do we wear masks? Why is it that masks are so co comfortable? What is the purpose of masks? Now, because of the way my, my, my monkey mind works, my mind, I, I, I have a thousand things going on in my mind at the same time. And, and so I'm listening to this, this sermon. And as I'm listening to it, I was thinking about a, a reel that I saw on Facebook of these two social media influencers, a guy and a girl, and they were watching videos of very talented makeup artists. And I'm not talking the ones who make humans look like aliens. I mean, women who were really good at putting on makeup. And they were showing before and after pictures. And at one point, one of them goes, this can't be legal. Because legitimately, what someone looked like before the picture looked nothing like after the makeup. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it was insane. At one point, there was a woman who I'm guessing was maybe in her 60s. And when she was done with her makeup, she looked like she was 20. And she went on to say that she enjoyed catfishing. You guys know what catfishing is? It's where you propose to be somebody else to lure somebody in. And... All of this, like you'd look and you're like, how in the world did this person go from this to this? Like makeup is powerful stuff. And, and because again, now you're not, I know there's a lot going on here. Yes, I was listening to a message which then made me think about a reel of two people watching a bunch of people putting on makeup. And then because of the way my mind works, I decided I should do some research on makeup. Because <laughs> that's just how my mind works. And I never thought those words would come out of my face, okay? And as a dude, I'll be honest, the only makeup I've ever put on my face is chapstick. That's it. Like that's, and so I decided I'm going to do some research on makeup and all the different parts of makeup and holy buckets, ladies. Like, 
I'm sorry. I'm just on behalf of humankind. I had no idea. One website showed that there were 13 different types of products used to do makeup. 13! Like as a dude, I shave. I maybe occasionally wash my face. And if my wife goes, yo, you need to pluck that and pluck that. Like, thank you, 40s. I got hair growing in weird places. And, I, and so I looked at this and, and I was like, 13. Now listen to this. These are just the basics. These aren't even the types of, or, or the different product names or even all the stylists. Just the basic product. 13. Here they are. <clears throat> You have primer, foundation, concealer, eye primer, eyeshadow, bronzer, blush, highlighter, lash curler, mascara, brow gel. I have no idea what that is. Lip products. There is a stupid amount of lip products out there. And then setting spray. And don't forget powders and creams and brushes. Okay, first of all, ladies, Bob Ross has nothing, y'all. The amount that you do with makeup. And then on top of that, what I've been told is that good makeup doesn't look like you have makeup on at all. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Like, that's insane. I mean, and let's think about it. You have this thing called the T-zone, which is like right here. This is for gentlemen. This is your T-zone. The ladies are like, duh. The T-zone, and then you have contouring. And the purpose of contouring is to accentuate the good parts of your face and hide the bad parts. Now, as a man, we do the same thing. See, if I want to get rid of a double chin, I just grow a goatee. <laughs> like... I just don't, I don't have to pay for it. I just grow it out a la carte. Like it's just right there, right? And, and so I'm looking at this and think of all the time, energy, and money all in an attempt to look good. Now, I, this is not a, a message on why makeup is wrong. Actually, I don't mind makeup. I think it's beautiful. My wife will put on makeup before we go out because she wants to feel good and she wants to look good for me. But here's the thing. My wife is already beautiful before the makeup. That's why I married her. I didn't marry her because she knew how to put on makeup. I married her because she's beautiful where it matters most. Amen? Well, you don't have to say amen because you're not married to her. But I'm going to say amen, okay? But let's think about this. All in an attempt to put on makeup. And I mean, think about even the names of the products, like what they do. Primer. You've got to prime the face to make it look, to get it ready to put on the makeup. Concealer, that just kind of says it all, right? Got to hide those imperfections. Foundation, you need to create the base. And all of this to cover blemishes, to hide insecurities, to appear more attractive to, attractive to others, to feel pretty, and sadly, sometimes to seduce somebody of the opposite sex. And here's the craziest part in all of this is that some of you women do this every day, and I'm like, It's a lot. Now, why does this matter? See, we're all good at putting on makeup. And I want you to be clear. Men put on makeup too. It's called buying a truck. <laughs> like, I cannot tell you. I bought, and I'm, fingers pointing at me, right? I bought a truck and I cannot tell you how many dudes are like, nice truck, bro. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> your rims are awesome. Yeah, I know. We'll spend thousands of dollars all in an attempt to appear better than we are. We're trying to cover up our blemishes and our scars to hide the imperfections and failures in our lives. Because the truth is, is it's really scary to be known, isn't it? It's scary to be known at our most basic level. For some of you, it's the fear of looking weak. 
or being seen as a failure, not being put together, fear of not being loved or accepted. For some of you, it's not being good enough, smart enough, strong enough, spiritual enough. I'll tell you in churches, churches are notorious for putting on a face. I had a dear friend of mine who said, you know, Jason, this is the first church I feel like I can be my church self and my non-church self at the same time. And how sad is that? That somewhere along the way, you were told that you have one way to act in the church and another way to act outside of the church. And the reality is Jesus wants us to be whole people. Amen. And that's messy. That's messy. That means if we're actually that kind of church where you can breathe, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get people who are not going to talk the right way, say the right things, be all put together. And that's scary because one of the most judgmental places in the world is a Sunday morning at church. And God is inviting us to so much more because that's why we put on masks. Some of you put on masks through your good deeds. It's like concealer. Some of you, you contour your life by hiding your flaws and failures and only accentuating the good parts of who you are so that no one can see the real bad parts. Some of you are the opposite of that. Some of you, your makeup artist, is you think you're ugly on the outside, so all you show is the ugly on the inside outward, if that makes sense. Your makeup artist is you want to look foreign because you feel foreign. You feel like you don't fit in. Some of you hide behind your mistakes or sins because you cannot fathom that God could love someone like you. And that's why God's promises and blessings are so important for us. I want you to hear this. And if you're ready for this, say, I'm ready. Ready. Here's the mind-boggling truth about God. God doesn't just see you. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Let me read again King David's words in the poem of Psalm 139. Now, Psalms are in the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me kind of explain what Psalms are. Psalms are the largest book in the Bible. And they are poems and songs written to God, about God, about wrestling with God. There are some pretty brutal Psalms where at one point King David's like, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why do you hate me so much? Why are my enemies destroying me? They're honest and they're raw. There's also beautiful songs about how good God is. And and the point behind good poetry, the point behind a good song is that it's not about the words. It's an invitation to go deeper than the words. And so instead of reading Psalms literally, we read them literarily. It's meant to draw us into something more than the words themselves. And and so I want to read again Psalm 139. Let's go deeper than the surface level of what these mean. And when you do that, you begin to see just how beautiful Psalm 139 is. And I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. We're just going to do a little bit of it today. God, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. David is literally saying, God, you know me at the deepest possible level. Every part of my life that I think is hidden from you, you've already searched it. There's nothing I can hide from you. You know when I sit, you know when I stand, you know every part of me. He then says, God, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God knows what you're doing, but he also knows why you do it. 
How many of you, if you're honest with yourselves, have made a decision that you made, let's say when you were younger, you made a decision and you thought it was for the right reasons. And then as you got older, you realized it was for the wrong reasons. Anybody be honest about that? You know what I'm talking about? Like you convinced yourself, you told yourself all the right things so you could go, oh, I did this for this reason and this reason and this reason. And then as you got older and were a little bit more honest with yourself and a little bit of distance and you go, yeah, I totally did that for the wrong reason. And it says that God doesn't just know what you do. He knows why you do it even when you don't. Now, this next part can be a little scary. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, knew it completely. That means that God knows the words that are going to come out of your face before you say them. Have you ever said something that you wish you could take back? God knew that word was coming. At one point, Jesus says that all of us, and this is a terrifying truth if you don't have the gospel. At one point, Jesus says, you will give an account for every errant word spoken. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be a long account. <laughs> and that's why Jesus is so good because he paid the price for those accounts. Before you speak a word, God knows what you're going to say and why you're going to say it. Why? Because God knows your heart. And we're reminded of this truth in scripture. Out of the mouth flows the heart. Your words are a reflection of your soul. <clears throat> One day, um, this is when my wife and I were newly married. And we were getting into fights pretty regularly the first several years. And, and I remember she was yelling at me about something. And I turned to her and I said, and I have permission to share this, by the way. I said, is that how you talk to yourself? And she said, yes. And I'm like, I am so sorry. God knows those words, those deepest parts, because out of your mouth flows the heart. This is also the same chapter that tells us that God knit us in the womb, that he knew us before we were formed. This is how we know that it's poetry, because God is not sitting up in the heavens with some knitting needles going, ooh, Jason's going to look pretty. That's not a thing. The point is, is that God is intimately involved in creation, and this is why human life matters. This is why we believe life begins at conception. This is why every life, every life, unborn or not, matters, because God formed and knew that life. This is also the chapter where David says, there's no place that I can hide from you, not the highest of heights or the lowest of valleys, not the deepest parts of hell. I can hide from you. How many of you have ever been through a season of hell and you just wonder, God, where are you? And God says, I was there. In those moments of hell, I was there. And there's a, an honest part in this where it seems so, this, this poem is so interesting because it's all these how God knows me intimately. And then all of a sudden, David begins to cry out about his enemies and how he wishes God would deal with them. And you're like, wait, this is really weird. You know me, you love me, you form me. And then all of a sudden, David gets really raw and honest with God and says some very broken things about his enemies. And I think the reason for that is, is well, God already knew they were there. David felt safe enough to do it. And then David prays this prayer, and it's an invitation, and it's probably the most dangerous prayer in all of Scripture. In fact, if you wanted to pray something dangerously, this would be it. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you know the story of David, David had some pretty nasty parts, didn't he? He was a liar. He was a murderer. He was a rapist. And here he is inviting God to search the nook and crannies of his life. 
That's kind of a bold prayer. I don't know about you, but that's a, that's a little scary. But here's the thing. The reason why David could share those things is because God already knew them. God already knew the deepest parts of David's life. So why does it matter that God invited or David invited God to them? Well, this is why it matters to know that God already knows you. See, first of all, God, when it says that he knows you, it doesn't mean he just knows about you. It means he knows you. He knows you're good. He knows you're bad. He knows you're ugly. He knows the ugliest parts of you. He knows the parts of you that you were like, if anybody found this out about me, they would never look at me the same way. He knows that part of you that you've been carrying around as an act of shame because of a decision you made in your teens or your 20s or your 30s, and you are sitting there going, God, how could you possibly love me? He already knows, and he still loves you. Knowing all of the brokenness, all of the ugliness, God still loves you. And that is a profound love. And this is where the good news comes in. Because as we understand love, God is never shocked. He's never caught off guard, off guard or surprised by anything in your life. There's no part about you that God's like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. He knows everything. And he still loves you. Which brings us to one of the most popular Bible verses used at weddings. And I want you to hear this. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a wedding verse. It, it applies to marriage, but it's not about marriage. Does that make sense? Yes, it connects to marriage. Let's, let's read part of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, some of you might have this on a plaque or in your house, or maybe you had somebody read it during your wedding. Maybe it was part of your wedding ceremony. I don't know what, but you're probably familiar with this. Even if you're not a Christian, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now let's stop here for a second. While these verses are beautiful, this is such a beautiful description of love. How do I know that this is not a marriage verse? Because God doesn't just tell us to love our spouses. We're supposed to love others this way. We're supposed to love God this way. And, and some of you need to hear this. You're supposed to love yourself this way. These are a description of love, but they're also God's way of holding up a mirror to ourselves. The reason why you need to be told what love looks like is because we're not really good at loving. If we were good at it, we wouldn't need to be told what it is. These verses are a mirror describing to us how broken we are, how the deepest parts of us don't love well. Let me show you what I mean by this. 
Why does love need to be patient? Because some of you lack patience and some of you are trying somebody's patience. Why does love, why do we need to be told that love is kind? Because some of us aren't very kind, are we? Why do we need to be told love is gentle? Because some of us lack gentleness. The same is true. Why do we need to know that love doesn't gossip or isn't self-centered or that it doesn't boast? Because some of us struggle with gossiping and self-centeredness and boasting. Why do we need to be reminded that it doesn't struggle with envy or pridefulness? That it honors and that it doesn't think of itself. We need these things because we don't do them if we're honest. Now, you may not struggle with all of them, but as I look at that list, there's more than a handful on there that I'm like, yeah, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. Some of them I don't struggle with, but others I do. And, and I think if you're honest with yourself, if you were to look through that list, maybe you're not kind. And some of you, it, maybe it's not kindness to others, maybe it's kindness to yourself. Maybe you struggle with showing gentleness to yourself, and that's why you're so harsh on other people. Some of you haven't learned to forgive others because you haven't learned to forgive yourself in Jesus' name because you are forgiven. This understanding of love can change you profoundly. Some of you struggle with anger. And here's the funny thing. I've yet to meet anybody that when encountered with anger doesn't hide. Some of you hide behind wanting to fight. Guess what? That's still hiding. I'm not afraid of anything. The fact that you're telling how not afraid you are shows that you're afraid. And all of this, when we don't understand love, the natural reaction when you don't understand love is you hide, which is why it tells us that love, true love, God's love, the kind of love that God wants us to have, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Because when you encounter love, true love, you begin to trust, you begin to have hope, and for the first time in your life, you might be able to come out of hiding. Only when you encounter love, you're able to take off the mask, come out of hiding, and let your guard down. Some of you here today have been putting on a mask for years, and I want you to know this, God knows what you look like behind the mask. The only person you're hiding from is yourself, because God already knows. You can't conceal it. You can't hide it. It's already known. The reason why David could pray, search me, God, know me, wasn't because he was innocent. It's because he knew that God is loving. He knew that God would enter in to those moments of his life, those parts that he was hiding, and in true gentleness and holiness, God would expose those things because he loved David. Which brings us to the good news of Jesus, the gospel, John 3, 16, which all of us have heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, for God so loved the perfect people or the ones whose lives looked put together. He also didn't say he only loved some of the people. No, God loved the That's everybody. All the people. The people that you would think are unloving, God loves. The people who you think are unworthy of God's love, God loves. 
the worst people, the most despicable people, the people that are in prison for murder, for rape, for molesting, for all these horrible things, you might say, how can they be loved? God loves them. But God's love does not mean that it's he loves everything you do. It also doesn't mean it's not sloppy agape, okay? It's not like God's just like, ooh, love, it's all good. No, no. True love has boundaries, amen? God sets up boundaries in love. And, and so, yes, God loves you in your messiness, but it does not mean that simply because God loves you that that means everything's okay. God loves you in spite of you, and He invites you to come out of hiding to step into true love to be known. And when this happens, you'll realize that you don't have to wear the mask because the reason why you wear masks is to make you feel safe, but they keep you from being known. Did you catch that? A mask may help you feel safe, but they will keep you from being known because you can never truly be loved unless you are truly known. Imagine if my wife was like, I don't know if Jason should ever see me without makeup. So she gets up at four o'clock in the morning every day to put on her face. And, and then I, it's like in the movies, right? And I wake up and here's my beautiful wife looking at me totally put together. That's not love. That's also not her being known. No, when I wake up, my wife wakes up next to me. We get smelly breath and all, right? <laughs> you cannot truly be loved unless you are truly known. And the reason why David wasn't afraid to pray such a dangerous prayer is because he knew the love, grace, and mercy of God firsthand. Which brings us to this beautiful text in 1 John. If you're not familiar with John... John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He has a book in the, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He was the youngest of the disciples. He was called the beloved of Jesus. At, at, at the Lord's table, when he was sitting down, uh, taking the bread and the wine and showing, telling them he was going to die, it says that John was at, seated at the breast of Jesus, close to the heart of Jesus. He goes by God's beloved, Jesus' beloved one. And later, John would write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are all books about God's love because John understood the love of Jesus personally. Listen to what John tells us about God. 1st John 4, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The world has full access to God's love. It has access. It doesn't mean they're experiencing it. Just because God loves the world doesn't mean the world is experiencing that love. They must accept the love of Christ, which comes through Jesus. It's a promise. And we know this because God is not loving. God is love. He is the definition of love. Everything about God, His judgment, His wrath, His protection, His jealousy, uh, His goodness, His faithfulness are all rooted in the fact that God is love. And John goes on to tell us more about this because here's what we need to understand. See, some have misunderstood this verse to think it means that because God is love, I'm okay, you're okay, God is love. No, the love of God means I can admit I'm not okay. The love of God means you can admit I'm not okay. In fact, it was God's love that sent Jesus, his one and only son, into the world, a world that he knew that would reject him and ultimately kill him. Jesus was not shocked by the cross. He knew it was coming before time began. He knew the evil hearts of men. He knew that he would have to die on that cross. 
And yet he still chose to come. The Father still chose to send him. The Spirit still came with him. In order to be loved by God, you must be vulnerable with God. You must confess your need for God. You must confess your sin, not all of your sins. It means you must acknowledge that you have sinned against God, against yourself, against others. You can't remember all of your sins. Amen? (laughs) That's why it's not about confessing all of your sins. It's confessing that you have a sin problem. If you don't have a sin problem, then you have a Savior problem. Because the only reason why we have a Savior is because we're sinners. And that love of God allows us to come out of hiding. It's also confessing that you've tried to hide from God through your good deeds or by your own wisdom and power. The gospel, what is called the good news of Jesus, is that you no longer have to hide. You don't have to be good enough, strong enough, or great enough because God's grace is enough. Listen to what he says next. This is in verses 16 and 17. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. You cannot live in love and live in hiding at the same time. Did you catch that? You cannot live in the love of God and continue to hide from God. You cannot do it. You will not experience the radical life-transforming power of love unless you come out of hiding. Jesus is calling you out because in him, there is no fear in love. Here's the last part of these verses. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. The only reason why you can love God is because God extended the hand first. The only reason why you know the love of God is because God showed his love through Jesus. You cannot love God without God first loving you. It is an impossibility. That means you can let your guard down. You can come out of hiding because you're safe in Christ. And the reason why I can tell you you're safe is God already knows you. God knows every part. And while it breaks his heart, he's never shocked. You may not realize what an incredible blessing it is to know that God knows every part of you that you can't hide. He knows every hidden thought, every shameful word spoken, every shameful act. Because even with knowing all of that, Jesus still loves you. Which leads us to this morning in the waters of baptism. And even though we were going to do you know, this big baptism in the lake thing that we do every year, that's just an event. The reason why baptism is so powerful is, do you remember what I started off this message with was it's not about being a good leader, it's being about being a good follower. The reason why we get baptized is because our leader was baptized. He calls us to follow him into the water. He calls us to step into the waters of baptism just as he did because they're more than symbolic. We believe that through faith in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, God does something in the water because without faith in Jesus, if you're going into the waters without faith in Jesus, you're just taking a bath. It's not even a really good bath. (laughs) But when faith and the Holy Spirit and the promise of God has moved into us, we discover that God moves. Baptism does not save you. Faith in Jesus saves you. Amen? 
Faith that what Jesus did on the cross paid the price for your sins. Faith that in Jesus you are forgiven, you are free, you are redeemed. Faith that Jesus' death paid for your sins and his resurrection now brings you life. And when faith is joined with the waters of baptism, holy things happen. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Would you stand with me for these last moments? That's something sacred and powerful that takes place. Let me tell you what happens in the waters of baptism. And these are things that God tells us happens through covenant. First, your sins are washed clean. Past, present, and future, they're washed away. Second, you're united with Christ. You are now made part of the family. Because when you go into the waters of baptism, your whole self is going into the water. You can come out of hiding. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. In the waters of baptism, you are made new through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the real life I now have within this body is a result of my trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here's what I want you to hear. If you were baptized as a child, how many of you were baptized as a baby? Raise your hand. That baptism is still good. That baptism is about what God has done. Baptism, the whole point of it is it's God's work, not man's. And so here's the thing. Some people are like, Jason, I want to be baptized again. You're not being rebaptized. You don't recircumcise a child. But what you can do is reaffirm your baptism. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've not been following Jesus. Maybe you're like, Jason, God has been working in my life. And today I made a declaration or this week or this year. I said, Jesus, I'm all in this past week. I got to lead a brother of mine who was raised in the church, but only recently, this week, said, I'm all in. Monday we meet. He said, Jason, I'm all in. I want this Jesus stuff. He didn't know God's word. Again, think about this. Raised in the church, didn't know the Bible. Because being in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Being in Christ makes you a Christian. And on Monday, he said, I'm all in. I want this. And I said, well, do you want to be baptized? He said, I, you know, I was baptized as a baby. I don't want to offend anybody. I said, no, no, no. Your first baptism, this is just the evidence of God's faithfulness to the promise of baptism. And so guess what we did in between services today? We went down with his family. He's heading back to Florida today. We went into the waters of baptism, put him in the water. And I said, brother, and he gave me a big hug and family's there. And it was awesome. God's faithfulness to infants is still a promise in baptism. So if you're getting baptized again, you're reaffirming what God has done. You're not second guessing it. Others of you, you've never been baptized. The waters of baptism are for you. If today, if you're like Jason, I've been in hiding for way too long. I need Christ. Maybe you surrendered your life to Christ when you were in high school. I got baptized going into ninth grade. Maybe you're saying, hey, I I did that and somewhere along the way I drifted. Man, I want to be back. I want to come back. The waters of baptism are an opportunity for you to step into the promise of the Lord. And again, it's God's promises about what he's done. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to give two invitations. The first is if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if this is the first time 
that you've ever heard, that you can come out of hiding, that you no longer have to hide from God, that Jesus loves you, knows you, and wants to forgive you. If this morning you want to surrender your life to Christ, would you just raise your hand for me? No one's looking. Just raise your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Praise God. Okay. Here's the second invitation. If you've been walking and you've been drifting and maybe you somewhere along the way just lost focus, if this morning you're saying, Jason, I need to come back home. I've been wandering. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray this song of blessing. And then afterwards, we've got somebody who wants to get baptized today. And I'm going to invite you all. You want to know why we invite everybody to come and participate at baptism? And we're still going to do it next week because there are some people who the lake is about them. There's nothing special about the lake. Trust me, there's nothing special about the lake. But we invite you because it is a celebration of what God is doing. And I think somewhere along the way as a church, we saw baptism as just one of those things we do instead of celebrating something miraculous is happening. Because when you go into the waters of baptism, it's makeup remover. It is the ultimate. Everything is being washed clean. And so as we close with this last song, if you gave your life to Christ for the first time, and there were a few of you who raised your hand, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come talk to me, one of our staff, maybe a friend, say, hey, I gave my life to Jesus today. If you want to be baptized, if you didn't sign up, I don't care. Just come down to the water's edge. We're going to go right after here. We're going to go right over to the beach, over at State Beach. Not State Beach, sorry, uh, City Beach. And we're going we're gonna to do a baptism. And then next week, we're going to do a baptism. But as we sing this song of blessing, if you're standing next to somebody and you feel like the Lord's asking you to lay your hand on that person, pray this blessing over them. And let us know this truth. God wants you because he loves you and he wants you to come out of hiding. Amen? Let's come and worship the Lord.